This is A Strategist, episode 1025. My name is Zane Belgi. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, Happy New Year. It is time, Stephen Carter. I know you're excited for this because uh, this is mandated. This is rules-based. This is something we have to do uh, as part of our ongoing sponsorship uh, in the new year. And, and, and here we are, Carter. It is the mandated annual patron's mailbag it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a mouthful but yeah. we do it carter and we are here yeah i mean with the and of course to to complicate things the patrons mailbag we then release to everybody yeah well right. it's to make them make them perhaps consider becoming a patron so that one of their fine questions can get asked next time Corey. it's is perfectly I, I feel there's a zero percent chance we're going to answer them appropriately enough that that's going to be the case oh, yeah I, we I, probably I like will spirit. lose patrons but honestly at this point <laughs> i'm fine with that weren't we Carter. always yeah weren't, weren't we always, we always a happy great new year, losing sir? our patrons don't uh, before we jump into this carter before we jump into the mailbag of questions mm-hmm. that patrons have left for us uh happy new year steven thank you very much uh, happy would you new like year to, to you? publicly share as you do on the first episode of the new year, your resolution for the year uh, with the listeners. Well, as always, I have my number one resolution, which is that Corey be smarter. Um, that that has been my resolution for what, about fifteen years. Um, mm-hmm. And each of those fifteen years, it comes true, buddy. It's just you know, it's, it's a big resolution for me. Uh, the second resolution, and I think I speak for most of the patrons, is that one day you learn how to ask a question with less than a hundred words. But it's it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's it's big it's it's difficult and then for myself because i'm not a you know i, I have to uh because i'm i don't know if you guys know this but i'm the old man on this podcast um probably people probably can't tell from our voices when they're just listening but i am much older than you two and heather uh, well this is actually and heather's new year resolution yeah. for me heather wants me to uh live forever so i have to lose weight and live healthier so already uh day two miserable absolutely fucking miserable so i have that going for me okay that's <laughs> oh you guys <laughs> wanted money Fuck. no we just, I, just I, typed just into the whatsapp that he thought he was listenable listenable is all yeah, we something, yeah, sorry. something that yeah. would maybe I convince that. these i misread that fucking people to pay <laughs> carter that is oh. not the content we need uh we we also hope you uh you have a long and and healthy uh life carter Corey. Uh, I don't believe very that. somber note that we begin with. Corey, Thank you. <laughs> any any New Year's resolutions for you that don't involve trying to elongate life? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, if, if anything, I'm going to try to truncate it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> That's fine. Specifically, this part. Yeah. Listening to Stephen <laughs> Carter talk about you, the things he what wants do you mean? to do. What? Do you, what? <sighs> okay. Good. We set fine. you up. We set you up, Carter. You we know what? You, you give up, me Carter. no advance and, and notice. You, you tell me nothing about what's going to go on on the show. I didn't even welcome know that we to were the asked... show, Carter. Welcome to the show. Okay. Why do you think it takes me ten minutes to ask a question? There's no advance notice even for me. No idea where this thing is going. Which is why today we've got the help of people much smarter than Stephen Carter. Yes, it's the patrons who have asked questions for our mailbag. Here's how it's going to work. We've got a, a bunch of questions. We're not going to get through all of them. However, we've got them in what, Corey, you'd call what comment format on, on a post that we've made on, on, on Patreon. So we're going to scroll through these comments. I'm going to start us off with the questions that I find interesting, and then I'll let you uh, kind of jump in. Which question do you want to go with, Corey? Carter, you can jump in. We'll kind of sure. do a round robin. 
until we wear out the clock, so maybe about three hours or so, until uh, until we wear out this clock, or until uh, Stephen gets less entertaining, which, um, if we were keeping that metric, we would be done the podcast <laughs> by now. Really um, upset. So let's move it on uh, to our first segment, our first segment, the mandated mailbag. Here we are, guys. Across the board, we've got questions from our listeners, and there's so many intriguing ones, so many deep dive opportunities, so many one- that are just trying to ask for clarification. But Carter, I want to start with this. And it's a question you've actually... It's actually a question right at the top of the list. But it's a question that I think is a softball that can really get you going, Stephen Carter, right? Because really, get the blood pumping. Stephen Carter, there are so many political books in Canada. This person, Pat, wants to know what is your favorite. And I'm going to add a part to it. And why? Uh, I know you've consumed a lot of the political literature in this country. Some of it you know, biographical, yeah. some of it autobiographical, some of it about the campaign life, some of it about the policy life. Tell me what your favorite political book is and why. Well, I'd love it to be something new because, you know, I like to read and I read some books last year, but it's nothing new. It is, in fact, old and it's not a single book. It is a pair of books, although I may add in a couple of honorable mentions. Um, actually, I will. I'll add an honorable mention. Primary Colors uh, by Anonymous, who turned out to be Joe Klein. Um is one of the most entertaining reads you can have. It doesn't teach you specifically about Canadian politics, so I have to pull it away uh, from this contest. But there are two books, both by Steve, Steve Pakin of TVO fame. Uh, they are The Life and um, The Dark Side. The Life, uh, we've talked about these on the pod before. I still think they're the best books about Canadian politics. The Life explains what it is like... Um, why people are drawn into the arena of politics. And it really shows how people can do the, you know, politics for the betterment of their society, the betterment of each other. I love that book. And then there's the dark side and the dark side does a great job of outlining what happens to politicians after they're done. Cause once politicians are done, it is not a life of riches. It is not a life of, um, you know, high profile for some. Absolutely. But for most, they just go back to their lives that they had before. And in fact, are often dropped down, um, many levels, uh, cause they are no longer the people that be, you know, people go to, to ask for favors, to ask for things. In fact, they become the forgotten, uh, the forgotten few, uh, which is why we see so many people trying to to hang on to a life of politics afterwards. Those two books, anybody who's going to run, any any person who's got someone in their life that's running, they need to read those two books. They are outstanding. Steve Bacon. Corey, I know you have a tough time reading um, because mm. most things come to you via osmosis. Uh, or you make them up with a, a, a white man's confidence that we yeah. generally believe on this <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> um, but should you consume a book on the politics, one might say, what would it be, Corey? So my, there's a couple of books that I've enjoyed over the years on Canadian politics. To be honest, it's something I read more when I was younger, when it was kind of an abstract fascination. It was this distant thing. I thought it was this really like cool, glamorous thing, uh, you know, in some way, shape or form. And then, then I worked in it and I learned better. But there's one book that um, kind of bridges both reality and kind of that outsider looking in. Really, really fascinating. It's a book from 1988. It's called Reign of Error. Uh, it's by Greg Weston. And it's all about John Turner's leadership of the Liberal Party of Canada. <laughs> uh, from him being the golden boy who was supposed to come in and just, you know, dominate yeah. to, of course, getting trounced in the 84 election. And then the leadership review after that and through. Um, it's it's good. It's got a lot of... Uh, 
vignettes, shall we say. And I was just looking on Amazon.ca right now. You can get a new copy from $72 oh, or a wow. used one from, from 12 That so, sounds... You know, that's like that's less than two flare airline flights to be honest so <laughs> i'd go for it i'd go for it at least with that book you can guarantee it's gonna get there can we do our so, least favorite that, too or is it oh <laughs> carter who do you want to trash i'm sorry i forgot that there's an element of this podcast where you for no reason start trashing uh people and or institutions so carter who do you want to trash before i let cory finish his thought uh think big by preston manning it's a insufferable book by an insufferable man Thank you. <laughs> Corey, did you have anything else to say on this on this topic? Uh, no. I, I, I'm just impressed with myself that I actually thought of a book. Ah, so nicely you're done. welcome. Um, I'm going to give a few suggestions. No one asked me, but that's oh, the hey, Zane, do, show. do you know how to read? Uh, yo, just learned. And let me tell you something, Carter. Yeah. Um, in, in true Zane Velge form, I'm just going to copy what you guys said. Uh, so the dark <laughs> thing, I'm joking. Uh, two books <laughs> that I think are really interesting. Uh, the first one, How to Win an Election, uh, An Ancient Guide uh, for Modern Politics by Cicero. It's really interesting. It tells you how much has not changed around persuasion, organizing some of the core principles. And the second one, which I'm sure several people have heard of, uh, came out about five years ago now, called Victory Lab by Sasha yeah. Eisenberg, which talks about the deep dive into politics. Most practitioners have a decent sense of this, but I would recommend his next book that he wrote. I believe it's called The Engagement, which goes into a deep dive on um, the the fight for, for gay marriage in the United States and the political tactics and strategies that were used to effectively, in a very short period of time, in the, in the broader political sense, turn the tide of public opinion so quickly. So I, I would recommend, I guess those two or those three as, as, as my recommendations. That's great Canadian content there, bud. Uh, they didn't say Canadian. They, they, said just, Cana they just want the knowledge. I'm looking at the question. Canadian politics. I'm looking at the question now, and they said Canadian. You know what, Pat? I don't give a fuck, okay? Fuck I'm giving you, you I'm broadening your horizons, Pat. Okay. Stop being so narrow-minded, Pat, okay? <laughs> fuck you, you know, Here's what I want. Yeah, right. fuck you, Pat. That's right. Fuck you, Pat. Corey, uh, who are we going to say fuck you to next? Uh, which, which, which fucking person do we want to uh, take a question from? I'm giving you the next, uh, next go at it. Well, um... There's there's a couple here that I think we can do in rapid order here. Uh, one from Omar asking, does Zane wish he was Hassan Minhaj? Can you try and pronounce no. that again? I'm not sure who. No. Who you meant? No. No. That guy's a comedian. And I'm more. Uh, I'm I'm funnier than him. Let's keep going. Okay. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can you ask a question in under ten words? He's got great hair, though. You know, he the one of the things about him <laughs> is that he's got great. He's very really nice. handsome. Yeah. And. Yeah, I do want to be him. It is true. It is. It is very true. Uh, this okay, question's well, opened up. A wound. Out it's opened up a wound. So here, here's one from Ali, which is is something that I think we brush past a lot, and sometimes we'll even throw each other like, uh, "No, I think that's more tactics than strategy." It's strategy versus tactic. What's the difference? Oh, Why that's do a good so question. many confuse the two? And who impressed you with their use of strategy in 2022? And who gets the award for most bumbling use of tactics that almost look like strategy? <laughs> Ooh, well, Corey, I, I feel like. I mean, not to say that I'm I'm guiding this show because the listeners are in many ways, but oh, I feel I mean, like yeah. you are the the host. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, mean, I have given that job up a long time ago, <laughs> and I think people have noticed. Uh, but Corey, I feel like your description, I have to say, of strategy and tactics and the difference between the two is actually one of the best I've heard. I'm not just pumping your tires. I think is one of the best and clear-eyed I've heard 
um, in this broader sort of communications marketing realm. So do you want to try to give that a go? And then we can kind of get into the what I think is the fun part of that question around uh, who who nailed it on strategy and who kind of failed it on tactics. Yeah, I mean, now I'm afraid I'm going to give a different definition than one I gave last Be time. Be consistent. There's Corey. lots of definitions. Be consistent. Strategy and tactics, right? And I tend to use the ones from the ghost framework of strategic planning, which is goals, objectives, strategy, and tactics. And strategies is generally at a high level, how you approach your work and meet your objectives. And tactics is at a detail level, how you approach your work and, and address your tactics. So a strategy would be something like, uh, it is our strategy to always paint the opposition as tied to the federal NDP. And a tactic would be, okay, uh, they've opened their mouth, so now I'm going to put a bunch of tweets out about it. And so that would be the, the general mm. difference between the two. And the idea with strategy is is that it's, you know, it's always laddering up towards your objectives. It allows you to stay on course. It allows you to shorthand and, and quickly decide how you're going to act. Um, and so it should be broad enough to be used in a variety of circumstances, and a tactic is just a tactic. It's a one-off thing, but it's in service of a strategy or it's, uh, you know, in service of meeting an objective directly. But but that gets risky for reasons we probably don't need to go into. Carter, you know, Corey's definition is good. His examples are good. You, for the longest time, for more, longer than both of us, you know, in, in a rare moment of sincerity, have kind of held this position as campaign strategies. In fact, I'd argue you were one of the first in the country to kind of like do this job full time in like a real meaningful way, at least in the era of politics that Corey and I maybe have practiced yeah. in. And you've been very clear that you're a strategist that you don't, but you've also jumped into the management, which has been a lot of tactics side. In your sort of framework of how you've operated as a practitioner, expand on Corey's definition here and, and help the, the listeners understand, um, you know, how you've kind of uh, parse these out because there's a bit of a nuance to them. And, and often, even in our world, we have to kind of sometimes step back and be like, is that a strategy or a tactic in some ways? Yeah. I mean, I think that the the big definer of a strategy versus an objective versus a tactic is the timeline of, it, uh, of them, right? So the, the strategy is going to be, in our world, campaign long, right? So we do campaigns. So the strategies tend to be relatively short-lived. Uh, the longest campaigns that we tend to see are about two years, and those are the presidential campaigns or a leadership campaign. So you would devise a this, a series of strategies or a strategy that that encompasses that entire time frame. And then, like Corey says, what you want to see are tactics and 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 smaller objectives. So the tactics will support the objectives. Um, those tactics are going to be compared to the strategies all the time. Is this actually what we wanted? So one of the strategies might be to to create a brand for the uh, candidate that shows that they're approachable or that they have knowledge or that they are a specific type of person, then you would always make sure that every video you put out, make sure that they appear approachable, right? So the tactic of the video is then compared to the overarching strategy. Did we make them look, you know, approachable or did we make them look knowledgeable or did we make them look like Pierre Polyev, which is neither approachable nor knowledgeable. So, I mean, each one of those things is a strategy that then governs the tactics. And, you know, for me, I've always thought, you know, for me, I have a difficult time actually articulating what the tactics necessarily need to look like, right? I'll say, you know what we should do? We should uh, make sure that we've got a good, solid ground game. And then for me, in my head, it's over. Well, you know, and then there's a group of people who are really good at tactics and they will come in and they will break that into 
300 manageable steps to ensure that we've got eight people each night doing door knocking in a specific riding times 87 different ridings, right? So the ground, like I've talked about the ground game for the NDP needs to be super duper strong in Calgary if the NDP is going to be victorious in in six months or five months, whatever it may be. Um, So that means they have to have, you know, that's the strategy, develop a strong ground game. Okay. Now all the tactics and the objectives that go underneath that strategy are going to be, okay, how we're going to make sure that Calgary Glenmore has got a strong ground game. You know, how are we making sure that elbows got a strong ground game? You know, each one of those ridings is going to have a specific set of tactics that will then enable them to meet their own objectives, which all in turn support the strategy. I went on a little bit there. Corey, you wanted to add anything on this? Yeah. You know, this is so fundamental actually to this whole fucking podcast, maybe it's worth backing up, right? Like, so a goal is something that's vaguely defined. It's maybe not even measurable. Maybe it is often in our line of work. It's win an election. That's our yeah. goal, right? Generally a binary. Then, turn that in, then we turn that into, though, into something quantifiable. Mm. To win that election, we believe we need to have 20,000 voters on a list for election day. That becomes your objective. The strategies then become how you get those 20,000 people on a list, Right. Just to give you an example from a local campaign. So it might be we're going to have, you know, door knocking. Uh, we're going to emphasize door to door contact or a strategy might be we're going to emphasize the phones or we're going to emphasize the Internet. But those are strategies. And then the tactics underneath are the specific ways you do that. So say your strategy was you're going to you're going to get in front of as many voters as possible. That's your strategy. Well, then your tactics would be door knocking. And we're going to do that via getting our volunteer people out every day calling these people, making it happen. But the thing I want to underline here, I mean, that's in some ways just background, is you don't need to define something as a strategy to have a strategy. What we talk about a lot in strategic circles is the idea of intended strategy versus unintended strategy or deliberate strategy versus emergent strategy if you're going to be more charitable. And the and it's like whatever you do, the sum of it and how you've acted could be defined as your strategy. And what separates a good campaign from a bad campaign, you know, the whole ethos of yeah. this whole bloody show is if you're thoughtful about strategy, you're going to have better outcomes, Right. So we try to be deliberate about strategy. We drop it if it's not working. We want to be nimble. We still want to be able to take those emergent strategies when they happen. But ultimately, the idea is we're trying to get somewhere and we're trying to define where we're getting and we're trying to act intentionally towards getting towards that goal. So where, you know, more amateurist campaigns might end up is just saying we want to win an election and they just do a bunch of stuff. They just knock on a bunch of doors randomly. But if you're being strategic, if you're being thoughtful, you're saying, okay, well, how can I best get to those 20,000 votes on that list? And that's the nature yeah, of strategy. I mean, I can use it to give an example. Like we're doing voter contact for Kent Hare in 2015 or whatever or whatever the federal election was. don't even remember because it's a long time ago now. But we're doing voter contact and the idea came up, well, we should door knock in Chinatown. Well, you know, we said we we're doing a voter contact campaign. We said that we would making sure that we went out and talked to as many people as possible. But the strategic choice, like when Corey talked about the numbers, you don't go to places that aren't going to vote for you. You go to the places that are most likely to vote for you. So that's a different operational choice than a strategic choice. The strategy is still higher. The operational piece comes in underneath it. And, you know, in, in that example, Carter, your your choice could have been, you know, your strategic choice could have been to say, we're actually going to run a persuasion campaign, that this is less about mobilization. We feel like our pathway has to be convincing at least a sliver of people that are currently either 
on the other side or inactive and persuade them to either vote or vote for us, right? And you could make that as a strategic choice, and everything you choose there on after would tactically follow suit for that strategic choice you've yeah, made. Yeah, so let me let me jump in there. Like to win an election, you're going to need some number of votes. Right. Yeah. You're going to determine. It's all about and you may You may, as part of your strategy, say... I'm going to try to play my two opponents off it. If it's a three-way race, try to keep them balanced. Do the Doug Ford thing. That can become part of your strategy, right? Never give somebody the role as main opponent. Try to balance between it. Uh, you might be sitting there and saying, I need 20,000 votes. And I believe that everybody who's willing to vote for me right now sums up to 16,000. So I guess I better change 4,000 people's minds. That's going to be, you know, that's going to lead to certain strategic decisions as well. But, but the idea is this intentionality is the root of strategy. Now there's a ton of different frameworks though. And I don't want to suggest that there's only one. The idea is not that you call one thing a strategy and the other thing a tactic. And if you say otherwise, you're doing it wrong. Yes. It's that you're covering off all of these things as you go. Carter, finishes off. Well, I just want to, there's a bunch of questions about what strategy the NDP need to use in Calgary to be successful. So I want to bounce off of this because David Coletto's um, sur- uh, surveys that he's been releasing over the last few weeks really point us in a direction. And, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, and I know that my own data supports what David's got going. And that is that there are reluctant UCP voters. So people who have voted UCP in the past, who are reluctant to vote UCP in the future. And there are two strategies that you could try and use that Corey and I could equally um, espouse. One strategy is to convert them to NDP voters. And a second strategy would be to ensure that they don't vote, right? Because they don't want to vote for you, the NDP, and they don't really want to vote for the UCP. And the only example that we've seen of that is the 2012 Alberta election, which Stelmack ran against 12, I'm sorry, 20, 2007, uh, 2008, somewhere in there, Stelmack versus Taft. 2008. Because yeah. we had the lowest turnout in the in, in provincial history because I would argue that Albertans didn't really want either of them to be premier. Neither one of them stoked the fire. So if then, you know, for the NDP, you could choose either one of those two strategies and each one of those strategies is then going to drive completely different objectives with completely different tactics, depending on which strategy we chose. Corey, do you want to expand on that before we? we, I do want to cover off the other part to this question on on strategic highlights of 2020 and and bumbling tactics. If you've got any on mind, but to Carter's point here, did you want to expand on that? Well, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I think everybody agrees. Like simply put, we shouldn't take it even as a given. The NDP strategy has to be to get votes in the city of Calgary. It has to be to win what two thirds of the seats in Calgary, probably. Right. Because you've you've basically got Edmonton. You're not going to get too much in the rural areas of Alberta. And because of the way everything splits and the way ridings are built, it comes down to Calgary. So let's just say strategy level one is you've got to appreciate that Calgary is the game. Calgary is where it all is. And I think that the NDP understand that Um, the the NDP's campaign headquarters, I believe, is going to be in Calgary. And um, certainly uh, Rachel Notley has been down in Calgary perpetually since the last election there's there's an appreciation of that but you know the next level really is is not just saying okay i need to be in calgary it's to it's to acknowledge okay how here's how i'd put it in some ways it's super simple you've got to understand who's movable and how to move them Mm -hmm. and where i think political parties often like they they get to the edge of the promised land and then they they can go no further is they know what their objective is 
And then they assume because they're good at politics, they know the strategy and the tactics innately and they do the things that would resonate with them. But almost by definition, if you're doing a campaign where you've got to come to a different jurisdiction than the one you know well, you're winning in Edmonton, you're trying to win in Calgary. The things that win in Edmonton don't win in Calgary. If they did, you'd already have Calgary. Right. I can see Carter desperately wants to get in here, but I'm going to finish yeah. this thought. So you've got to know, you know, have a certain humility to it and, and say, what can we learn? Let's do polling. Let's understand the accessible voter universe, not just our voters, not just the voters who will never vote for us. In fact, neither of those groups matter at all right now. Who are the movable people? Who are those people David Coletta was identifying as kind of the hesitant UCP voters or the people who voted Rachel Notley in 2015 or the people who maybe are new to the province and haven't really decided what their provincial alignment is at this point? Whatever you do that as, however you define that, and you probably in your polling want to be able to just define it in kind of concentric circles out and you know have a theory of that. Then you've got to make your campaign about them and changing their minds and doing the things that matter to them and using the communications tactics that hit them. So, for example, if it turns out, and I don't believe this would be the case, but it's all 65-year-old women, maybe you're not going to do TikTok. Maybe you are, right? Probably not. Uh, If it is all 22-year-old men, first of all, they don't really vote, but let's say they did for a minute – well, then your tactics are going to skew away from newspapers. But the point is you want to be led by data and you don't want to assume just because you are good somewhere else, you've got to read on everything. It's, it's, you've, you've almost got to turn off the part of your brain that's instinctual and just be a robot about these things. In some ways, it's that simple. There's an art to it that's layered on top, but you've got to start with that foundational understanding of whose minds can be changed and how can they be changed. Carter, do you want to, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah. I mean, at some point we're going to have to close on this question, right? But, um, Jonathan Haidt, like the question within a question. Yeah. That that I did. It was all my fault. This is entirely my fault. Jonathan Haidt wrote a book. Um, he's a professor at New York university called the righteous mind. And in that book, he makes the case that people who have different value systems have very difficult times speaking to people of the other value system. He makes it very clear that the two, you know, the multiple value systems that we may all share are no better or no worse than the others. And I think that this is one of the problems that the NDP bring. The NDP brings in a really clear understanding of their own value system, but no understanding of how to communicate to people with different value systems and no, um, no value placed on other people's values. So they do not value when you differ in their opinion. You, they, do, they do not understand when you don't understand them. And they want you to join not just, and this is the same on the right wing as well. This is the same with the wild rose. And you, and then the question that you were asking, Zane, is when have we seen the strategies that worked well? I want to come back to it. But bottom line, Pierre Polyev and Danielle Smith, understanding that they needed to talk to the far right, both did that. And now I'm waiting to see if they can implement the second part of their strategy, which is to flip back to the middle because both of them lose to the right. Sorry, I went or, a long way. I want to give you. I want to give you an opportunity to add some color on this, but <clears throat> I'll, maybe I'll just kind of add some color on add Carter's point around what yeah. he's talking about with with the height um, moral foundations theory. So this is fantastic um, sort of work out of uh, NYU Stern School moralfoundations dot org. You can kind of look at the the system that that height and other scholars have created to understand things like political language, how uh, different types of political parties cater to different sort of moral norms, whether that be loyalty, authority, fairness, or more emotionally derived norms like care or harm 
or uh, or, or fairness and accountability and cheating, and and how different political sides of the spectrum communicate with different types of language, and how that language is actually uh, more impactful than perhaps the left wing or right wing quote unquote policies that they adopt. It's how you kind of. Uh, case it in some of these moral sort of frameworks. Moralfoundations.org, I just wanted to add that color because I do Thank find you. it fascinating um, in terms of, uh, of, of a background and an approach to think about this uh, more three-dimensionally than just a simple left-right. Corey, I'm going to go to that same question for you on the um, yeah. concept of uh, expanding on what Carter said here, but also the, the strategy hits and misses, um, which, which you kind of discussed in the Holiday Spectacular, but maybe we can think a few more ideas if there are any for, well, for yeah, Ali's I, question. I, I, y- in some ways, you really gave me a launch pad for what I wanted to say here, Zane, which is that when we talk about what's going to move them, we don't just mean policies, right? I, I think, for example, about uh, a municipal issue, just to illustrate, uh, the idea that you should be able to um, to zone higher on your property. Like, like you've got a house, a single family house, you want to build a duplex. Let's say that's the idea. Well, there's a, there's a left-wing argument for that. And, you know, there's, I'm simplifying for the purpose of not spending all day talking about this, but it's the idea of we need more housing, right? We need more affordability of housing. There is a right-wing argument for that. Yes. No city government should be able to tell me what I do with my property. It's the same basic policy, but it's framed in two very different ways to speak to two very different groups of people. And I guess the point that I would make to wrap a bow on this, at least from my point of view, is that this is not a value judgment. This is not saying this is a failing of the NDP. I actually think that the Alberta NDP does a good job of of trying to get out there. But we need to appreciate that at the moment we need them most, our instincts fail us. Right. The minute we're talking to groups outside of our group, our instincts fail us and, and we can be pretty cocksure in our approach right up until we fall fucking flat as a result of it. And so what politicians need to do is they need to, to appreciate their own speed limit. Right. The car can only go so fast before it's going to careen off the road. And there is there is no shame in saying, well, that doesn't ring right to me. But fuck it. I'm not the audience. And that is something I think politicians have immense trouble yeah. Mm. There's a there's a I, I'll I'll kind of end on this point before I move on from Ali's question here, uh, and I think the floor comes back to me on this card, yeah. um, because I, I suspect your question was the consolidation of several questions. Um, have either of you heard about this the pizza burger sort of analogy before? No. Uh, does that okay? So there is I found it fascinating. It was like a uh, a democratic strategist talking about long term movement building. And they were saying that as it relates to long-term movement building, the proclivities, as it were, for the left for the longest time in order to try to make their ideas more palatable was to dilute them, was to try to make them more centrist so that they'd be more acceptable versus doing what Corey said, which is tell your version of the story with language and a story and a casing around it that is more compelling, that you don't have to sacrifice what you fundamentally and what your base wants by by just trying to shift to the middle and add some water to the wine. And the and the example that they gave was that when you're looking to have dinner and you're deciding between pizza and a burger, zero times out of a hundred is the answer a pizza burger. The middle option. Right? <laughs> the answer is generally pizza I or mean, burger. You can go either way. Well, and there I'm is hungry. something to be said about that storytelling exercise. Yeah. Or a burger pizza. Well, I mean, this is why you guys are white and I have a much better palate than you, yeah, right? Of course. That I never choose the pizza burger, which I will not talk about Corey Hogan's um, long term fast food 
uh, list that I have gotten. Put a couple of French fries oh, God. in there. Oh, God. Oh, so good. Oh, God. You're disgusting, yeah. Hogan. But the pizza burger How right now is this restraint. And it speaks to exactly this around storytelling, right? When we zoom out, what's that story that you need to tell? Carter, the floor is back to me, and I'm going to give you a choice on this to, to both of you. Oh, do you good. want a question that is more like this, philosophically rooted? Or do you want a question that is more of a, a macro, evergreen topic? Or do you want a question about the moment and the time? Because we, we can go either way like, uh, with, with some of our patron questions here. Lay it on me. What do you want? the philosophy stuff. The philosophy is something I think that we skip over so much. So the philo- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, uh, Zane, give me a philosophy question. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, this one's a bit of philosophy and a bit of why this exists. And I think it's an interesting question. This one comes to us from Amanda. She's saying, I'm interested behind the strategy of party-affiliated pundits on media and doing podcasts Mm. and talk shows. Uh, Why and how does the media use them? What shows do they try to book? What makes a good... What makes a good partisan pundit i think that's really interesting i can answer some part of that question yeah. i'll throw it to you i don't i know during the election this is a problem that many of the national networks have with me in particular is that they can't place me in terms of what jersey color to wear uh, because during the election i believe the major networks have to assign a red uh, a blue and an orange at minimum and have to report that back that they got the same amount of airtime so that you know mushy progressive label that i generally wear doesn't usually work so there are times during our election cycle where there is a mandate but i want to throw this over to you guys it's less about me more about you guys Corey, what makes a good one? How and best to use them and why do they exist? That's the core of Amanda's question. I want to get you started on this one. Uh, Partisan panels suck. They are so lame. They are so bad. Uh, Maybe let's just say there is a reason people do them. I have to imagine that the networks even know they suck. They have to because they watch network TV all day. They create network TV. They look at what their competitors are doing. Here's the challenge. If you are running one of those shows, and you've already talked about it in the context of an election, but it's true all of the time. Yeah. The minute you have a pundit on there, and let's just imagine it's a pundit without a label, people are going to get mad and say, well, that person's just a progressive or yeah. just a conservative. Why do you only have conservatives? Why do you only have progressives? And so it becomes very easy for, um, you know, if you've got to put on hours and hours of programming of political commentary a day to say, well, we just balance it. We just balance it. We find one, 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 throw in a green every now and then, throw in a block east every now and then, call it a day. Super easy, right? Uh, and it's somewhat inoculative and it allows you to say we're doing kind of a balanced scan of all of these issues. And, um, and so that's, I think that's why they do it. I mean, I don't actually work for one of these organizations. It would be amazing to, to ask Kathleen Petty a little bit, uh, you know, behind the scenes, tell us exactly what goes into the composition here. But um, what makes a good uh, partisan pundit? actually makes a bad partisan it's somebody who's willing to step away from the orthodoxy of the moment yeah. and live in the orthodoxy of their ideology right so if if their party is going offside of what makes practical sense they'll call bullshit on it that to me is a good partisan pundit but you know the parties don't like that so much right and then all of a sudden you run into the same problems like well i thought you were supposed to have balance on this panel but your liberal was agreeing with the conservative well, fucking good. Like every now and then that should happen because we're not robots who just follow party lines. We should have our own opinions every now and then. But I, in my opinion, the willingness to have your own opinion rooted in a worldview, sure, but your own opinion is what makes a good partisan pundit. Mm. Which is why, Carter, you know, I'll let you have your take on this. I think some of the most 
some of the the pundits that I respect the most, that I love being on with the most, are, are folks not just because we find common ground, but because they challenge their own sort of party quite often, um, whether it be an election or not. And I'm thinking of folks like Tim Powers uh, and others that I know we've had an opportunity to, to or Sean Spear, both conservatives who often disagree with with modern conservatism. Ken Bosenkul being another one that I'm, I'm throwing out three conservatives who've kind of gone up against their party. But Carter, I'll pose the same question to you. Partisan pundits, their value, why, what makes a good one? So their value to the party is that their talking points get out, right? So if they if you don't have if you don't have a partisan pundit who gets your talking points out, then you've missed being a part of that cycle. And every day is a new cycle, every day is a new topic, and you want someone putting your forward your views. Um Corey's point about, you know, what makes a good partisan pundit in his mind is someone who speaks their mind. Of course, that, you know, removes them from some of the party experiences, what the party feels like. I would argue that the best pundit is someone who looks like they're expressing their own mind while putting forth the party line. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, from the view. So I was doing from the view of a viewer. I'm doing it from from someone in the the party. party. What's the value to the party? The value to the party is talking points. The value to the party is reasonable people think the way that we think. So when we talk about Um, Tim Powers, we're talking about a reasonable guy that everybody loves. Everybody loves Tim. He's saying that this is okay. It must be okay. Right. It must be OK. That's that's interesting. You know, it's almost like if the party were to be if the parties and I and I kind of use this as a blanket statement were to be more critical of themselves, their value should not necessarily be getting the talking points out, but lodging in the minds of the viewers, the sentiments, however it needs to be that they care about or the value systems that they care about. But there's... right. Which is that the talking points are just too literal and too linear Versus, isn't it the the value systems? Would, would a political party, Carter, if I, if I, if you were working for the Liberals and, and the war room in that morning at nine a.m. sent an email out saying this is what we want on the air, we'll let you figure out how to get there, Stephen Carter. Be witty, be funny, take a side door to it, use your own words, just make sure this sentiment is captured. Is that not better than repeat these talking points and make sure you get them in in the two minutes that you get of airtime on a 12-minute panel? Sure, it's better, but it's like walking a tightrope. I mean, I've walked that tightrope. You've walked that tightrope. You know what it's like to be on the air and, and having to get messages across. I never cared about messages because I was like you. I was in the middle. I was the conservative liberal. And, you know, um, Evan put me on because he always knew I'd stir up shit. Um, since Evan left... Uh, I haven't been on. By the way. Right? I won't share that. Should I share the story or not? Oh, share the story. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't even know the story. I don't think. So I went to to go see our friend Evan in New York a couple weeks ago, because as you know, he's left. Yeah. So I was in New York. I saw Evan catching up, and he mentioned that the only time that his political panel, which I do on a weekly basis, and you filled in for me one week, the only time there was any shit was where one guy from Alberta showed up and started sniping at Tom Mulcair for no reason. So much fun. (laughs) And and I remember, like, stupid. So I had to put him in his place. Not my fault. Tom should be smarter. Oh, Carter, why, why? And he said, you know, that's the only time it actually got. The only time it was entertaining. Was it Stephen? He's like, yes, it was Stephen. (laughs) Carter, Corey, jump in on this on Carter's point. Like the 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 pundit who's able to use their own words or, or, or kind of provide their own sense of perspective, but still get the point across. Is that the hope here? And I guess the broader question I want to ask, oh. expanding on here, yeah, expand so, the broader question, effectiveness. 
Like, is this, are we just eating, drinking our own, like, you know, are we just in our own bullshit here that it actually matters that on a political panel where people who are already watching this are already hyper partisans, that you have someone to repeat your talking points per se? Like, does it actually matter, Corey? Hmm. Does it matter? I, let me return to that. Okay. I think that one of the things that I, I, completely agree with Stephen on is that if you're going to be a pundit and a partisan pundit, you should feel like you're not a partisan pundit, right? It's it's that sense of reasonableness that you were talking about a minute ago there, Zane, where it's like, well, you know, normally I would agree with the, my friend here, but I think in this case, you know, you, mm-hmm. you want to get there in a way that seems organic uh, so that people say, oh, that's a thoughtful way to do it. No, that doesn't seem like talking points. That seems like a thoughtful person giving thoughtful commentary. I, I absolutely agree with that. I don't, do they matter? Oh man, I don't know. Like, who watches political shows without a without a team? Like, without a thought in their head about it? It's I'm like genuinely curious. You know, I, well, I'm. I don't know. I feel in some ways like I'm sometimes that guy. So I, I guess they exist, but it, it's sort of like being a fan of sports. Yeah, there are fans of sports, but most of the time you have a team. Yeah, right. And so I just. It, it's not like I'm going to watch a basketball game and no. No matter how badly the Washington Wizards do, I'm still going to be a Wizards fan tomorrow. So I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. I wish. D- does anyone have any research on this out there? I'd love to. In the like, universe, I, even even like, Corey's. Do, do people have their minds changed by by these no. shows? No, but they Corey's don't. Corey's analogy is very interesting. Carter, is it sports? Like, is it watching wrestling? Yeah. Like, just to see how your person did and be like, fuck yeah. Like, I'm so glad X person is on the panel for us because they're a really good cleanup hitter. Like, are, are we? Are people viewing it that way? Like, I have to be honest. I don't watch a lot of these outside of the, the rare times that, that I'm on. But, like, most people watching, they're not there for the insights, right? They're there to see how their team performed. Well, especially within, within the hyper-engaged. The hyper-engaged does not change their mind, especially... But who's hyper- watching outside of the hyper-engaged? They That's will my question. Not, and a- it's the same with Twitter. Political Twitter is not changing anybody's mind because everybody's already articulated their space and they are not undecideds. They are already decideds. They will not be changing their minds. So the pundits on the shows are just putting out their points. Maybe they're trying to influence a media person. Maybe they're trying to influence something other than that or control a story or something like that. But most of the time, the stories aren't being controlled through these it's just damage control. That's really mm. all you're doing. It's just trying to make sure that shit doesn't get real because if shit gets real, um, you know, you, the last thing you need is for this to be another story, um, on the news, right? This is, this is the worst case scenario for you is that something bad comes out of this thing. So, you know, I mean, they're stupid. Um, and the way that we do the panels is stupid, but everybody else is there. You got to make sure you're there. So that is the strategic advantage to the to these groups. And they are completely risky because every time you put someone on carrying your banner, they could fuck up. Right. You could put someone on a talk show and they say, Danielle Smith doesn't care about children because she doesn't have any children. And boom, yeah. that's your story for the next seven days. And, and you know, that's a real example just, you're pointing I, out there. I'm, yeah, yeah, no, I, Corey, Corey, can I ask? I you? just really assume that there's logic to this. That's the other thing I would say. You know, there's there's just hurting by too many networks in Canada and beyond where everybody does this. And so, at the end of the day, a lot of this is driven by viewership. So perhaps by casting such a wide net and having people that, again, like it's a sports team thing, if we want to continue that analogy, maybe more people tune in because I just otherwise don't a hundred percent get it. But it's like the analogy about hot dog stands on a beach. If 
if there are three hot dog stands in a beach, you're going to find them in certain locations. If there are two, the most optimal place to find them is right next to each other in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so over time, people end up at optimal setups to get optimal outcomes. And I feel like the cable news networks seem to have done that. It's it's inconceivable to me that if it were to work to have totally nonpartisan panels, that somebody wouldn't have done it. Like my sense is that it just doesn't work, right? It's why MSNBC is popular. It's why Fox News is popular. It's why the more neutral channels like CNN have had to pick a side even over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting. And of course, if there was uh, more than two hot dog stands, um, Corey and Carter would still eat a pizza burger. Uh, Car- Corey, I'm going to give you uh, the opportunity to dive into our next question for us. So we've we've hit on a few distinct themes. We've talked about political books. I've expanded Pat's mind beyond Canada. So you're welcome, Pat. Uh, we've hit Ali's question on strategy and tactic. We've hit a lot of people's questions on the Alberta election and, and strategies there. We hit Amanda's question on uh, political pundits. Corey, where are we going to next? Are we going to go m- more into this philosophical evergreen lane? Are we going to go more into the current Affairs land, the choice is entirely yours. Ooh, that's exciting. So Sam asks, will we ever see boring government again? In an age where popularity, celebrity status, and yelling the loudest are clearly the winning formula to become elected, is there space for a get-the-job-done boring government candidate? If so, how do they win in this climate? Ooh, this is a more of a macro question, not just when they mean that. I, I suspect Sam might mean beyond Alberta, if I'm not mistaken, I reading assume. that question. Yeah. Uh, Carter, do you, uh, Corey's asked it. Do you want to start giving a go at this and, and, and formulating a bit of a response? First of all, I want to know who the guy, who, who, who the person is who was this person that, that, that won in the past. Um, <laughs> the boring yeah, tell me, the tell me who the boring guy in the past was. was Mr. Smith. He went to Washington. Because what I, I saw it what on I've TV. seen, I mean, yes, boring candidates can win. Right. In fact, you're probably way better off to be boring. And I'll I'll pick on my friend Cyril Turton, who is boring. I mean, lovely human being. Boring. Perfect MLA. Why, why are you? <laughs> why, why would you do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> I meant to say a hypothetical MLA from north northern North Alberta. Now, anyways, moving on. I mean, I sorry, Cyril. Um, can we bleep that out? Is there any way we can? No, nope, probably. You know not. the thing with Hassan Minaj is that he's just too animated. Okay, keep going, Carter. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> bottom line, the, the the leaders have to be personable. They have to be relatable. They have to be bigger than life, and that pushes them into positions. It pushes them into um, controversy, and uh, sometimes controversy is not bad, especially when you're a leader of a uh, of a large party. Right, controversy that that stokes up your primary members is fantastic. If it if it gets people on your side excited, then controversy is great. Um, you know, Danielle Smith with the Sovereignty Act, you know, she wins over a huge group of people by saying we're getting screwed over by Ottawa. It's the same line that Lougheed had. It's the same line that um, Romano had. It's the same line that you know every single premier that's successful is bringing that line, and she's just brought a new flavor. So the controversy is, I think, part of the um, the requirement of being the party leader. The only one who I think is relatively boring is Justin Trudeau, but he makes up for that with the celebrity side. He's still a celebrity. Nahed Nenshi was a celebrity. These people become something bigger than themselves, and that's what we want in the leaders that we elect. So I, I guess I disagree with the premise of the question. Very West Wing of you, Carter. Thank you. But I guess, Corey, the heart of the question, and I'm just trying to find it right here, um, 
seems to be like, is there value and viability in a boring status quo, good government approach? That's how I read it from how you read it out loud. Yeah. Is that, is that your yeah, reading I, of it? And, and, and if that's the case, you know, I'm curious to hear your answer, but I, I just thought I'd inject my version of how I interpret parts of that question. Yeah, you know, the question was, will we see boring government again? Yeah. Stephen has kind of picked on the again. I do think that there were more boring politicians in the past, but, you know, it's all on a curve. And obviously, there's like an Overton window for almost political behavior, too. We've talked about this. All of a sudden, Bill Clinton's playing the saxophone on Arsenio, and that was considered unpresidential. And smash cut to 2016, and we've got Donald Trump. For crying out yeah. loud, like things change. There's, there's no question about that. But, you know, Bill Clinton was being compared to George H.W. Bush, who was perceived as boring to some people. So, they, you know, there were boring, quote unquote, politicians in the past, but they were they were kind of within the range accepted of behavior for people in those positions at the time. The real question is, how do you make boring interesting, in my opinion? Right. I, I do think ultimately uh, we need our politics, our policies to become more boring. We need to stop seesawing back and forth between extreme solutions or, or just absolutely obliterating the other side's policies when, when, you know, one side flips over and it goes into a, a new government. Mm-hmm. But how do you make that interesting? How do you make moderation interesting? Um, I don't know if I have an answer to that, but I think there are ways to be interesting. Well, having a foundationally sound policy behind you, maybe we just need politicians who are interested in different ways, you know, quirky, weird, right? Uh, Rather than somebody who is going to have an outrageous policy. If you could get somebody who comes, you know, and joins a crowd of 30,000, not because you are motivated by an extreme policy solution, but instead because, you know, maybe it's the Zelensky model. Maybe it's somebody who's funny and willing to call bullshit on corruption and, you know, randomness sure. that occurs in politics to the point of absurdity. Joe T. Gondek but, brought some of that. You know, it's not about, it's not about, it's not about being boring. It, boring's not coming back. You're going to have to capture people's interests. The question is how. But Joe T. Gondek did that. I mean, her policies weren't, you know, inspiring or particularly interesting. But, you know, she dressed up um, for... May the May the fourth. She uh, went to Comic Con. She um, what else did she do? That stupid ride where they're all dressed up in in different costumes. She wore the costumes to that. There was a degree of of this is new. This is different. Even though the ideas weren't necessarily new or different, uh, they were just repackaged with this new person who was seen to be a little bit more exciting. Yeah, inter- interesting question on on whether we will see uh, boring again. Stephen Carter, will we see you pick a question? Oh, because the time is, oh. is is yours to pick a question. We've got a lot, have, a lot of interesting themes still left on the board, but you seem to already have one in your mind, locked and loaded. Hit us with. It, I Carter. have one what for do you, you Zane. I have one for you, and that question is: Yes, what's next yes. for Jean Charest? Ooh, you know they wanted Jean a three-hour special, but I'll let you go as long as you need to. What? What's next politically for Jean Charest, Zane? Go. Take us through it. It's a great it's a great question. It really so what is. ends up happening, yeah, no, in the new year he takes his resume and he goes to the people of Huawei and uh they they keep <laughs> uh keep making him full time staff. Yeah. Carter. Yeah. Just up the up the chain. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. at Huawei, CEO. CEO Jean Charest, CEO of Huawei. All yeah. the money. Yeah. He's I think, got all the money. All the money. Yeah. 
I like Jean Charest. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take a shit out of him. Corey, do you want to answer the Jean Charest question? Uh, no. Okay, perfect. Uh, Corey, uh, it's back to you. I'm going to skip my turn. In fact, Corey, I might actually give you a nudge. We've got two themes that are on the board that I think are interesting. You don't have to choose them. We've got a couple questions on, and I'm going to paraphrase, what the fuck is up with Jagmeet Singh? Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't don't know what exactly, uh, maybe my read on that is, I really don't see it in terms of why people are so pissed off, but you guys can jump on that. The other one is actually about right-wing media. A couple of questions on the theme of the ecosystem created by Rebel and True North and the ongoing independent media on the right. How do you combat it? How do you talk about it? How do you address it? Do you ignore it? Those are two themes that I still see on the board. You can go there or you can go anywhere else because we've got a lot of different questions. Actually, one just caught my attention here, yeah. if you don't mind. Somebody asked us if we could do a three-hour show mm. on what's next for Jean Charest. That's a good one. And I'm wondering, Stephen, if you have some thoughts on I it. do. I do have some thoughts on John Charest. Should Wait, did be. we not just do that one? Uh, John Charest is a leader among men. And what John Charest needs to do is keep himself in that leadership position. Uh, I think by publishing op-eds. Uh, op-eds... Uh, on topics uh, that range from is Tesla the only electric vehicle provider that matters uh, to um, how is the electrical grid going to hold up when we all have electrical vehicles? I mean, he is a thought leader, and I'm looking forward to his thought leadership in the future. That's a I mean, he, point. They, they basically have unlimited electricity, uh, green electricity in Quebec because of their At hydro. Huawei. Oh, sorry. Because of their sorry. hydro. <laughs> God. <laughs> you, man, you're stepping all over me today. Um, wow. Sorry. Yeah, I just thought I, we were, so I thought we were Anyways, converging on the same point. What other topics, Zane, do you think that uh, he could he could cover? Uh, Corey, I'm going to give you a real shot at this. You want to jump on, on, on another one here? Uh, yeah. Here's one. And, and it's a little yeah. more granular. But I actually think I'm curious to hear Stephen's answer. Okay. Because I have an answer okay. to this. Okay. Which definitely means Stephen does not, just yeah. so we're ready. No, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm making this up. Uh, it's from Travis. What are your three most important ridings in the upcoming Alberta election? Now, I know this is going to be like deep cut even for a lot of Albertans, but but I think this is worth discussing. Calgary Glenmore. Give us, a, give us a framework why. Okay, but go ahead. Yeah, list your ridings. I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm Calgary, curious in terms of why. Calgary Glenmore was won in 2015 by the NDP. I think it was by 12 votes. Um, it was, it was a, it yeah. had a, it had a judicial recount. Um, it was not held by the NDP in 2019. Um, it is right on the cusp. The NDP have an excellent candidate. They have the opportunity, I think, to shift. And frankly, without that riding, well, on all three of these ridings, um, the NDP has a struggle to form government in, in 2023. Uh, so the, Calgary Glenmore, number one. Calgary Acadia uh, is number two. It is probably on the whole, you know, on the hold list uh, for the UCP. I think the UCP think that they can win Acadia. It is currently where Justice Minister Tyler, Sh- Tyler Shandro um, is representing. And Tyler is uh, has suffered a lot under the Kenny and uh, Smith governments. He is the minister that brought you know, that was the health minister during the pandemic. He was then shifted out of that. And now he is the minister that brought us the Sovereignty Act. Um, He has been essentially kicked in the balls twice. um, And now he is going to have to try and carry 
this riding. And I'd be very interested to see if there is any personal payback for uh, for Tyler Shandro in Calgary, Acadia. Because if that goes to the NDP, it was won by the NDP in 2015, uh, but 2023 is a much different uh, time, different vote totals. Uh, they have to get 50% plus one basically to win. And the third riding I think that is interesting is Fish Creek. Again, the UCP think they Fish can... Fish Creek? Huh. The UCP, Calgary as well, just so people yeah, are clear. Fish, Calgary, Fish Creek. Listen, nothing exists outside of Calgary. Can, you know, uh, Banff, Kananaskis is probably going to go to the NDP. Lethbridge East and West go to the NDP. Uh, there's one NDP riding in Lesser Slave Lake that probably can be won. It's currently UCP. That's it for outside of Calgary. Everything else needs to be won in Calgary. So when you're looking at three ridings that need to actually flip, and if they flip, you know, because the other thing is, do you get 44 seats or do you get 50 seats? And if you get 50 seats, your government is just that much more stable. You get 44, one person crosses to be an independent, and you're fucked. So this is a um, this is a really, to me, it's really simple. You got to win way more than expected in Calgary, and that's why Acadia and Fish Creek are certainly interesting. And you have to get to at least the base, which means that uh, Fish Creek and, or that um, Calgary Glenmore uh, comes into play a little bit more. Does that answer your question, Corey, Zane? You, Was that actually your question, Zane, because you're working on that campaign and you wanted to know? It's not my question. Okay. I think I, I, think I like to, your answers. I just wanted to I check. like your answers. I'm, I'm curious if there's any similarities in Corey's response because, Corey, oh, yeah. you're locked and so loaded with Glenn, these. Yeah, Glenmore and Acadia were both on my list what, as well. What was your third? It was not Fish Creek. I, I mean, Fish Creek is an interesting one because it is a bit of an aberration after all of the madness we've had in politics over the next bit. And it might be a very important seat um, simply because it looks like it's going to be such a tight election based on the current state of polling. So it might, it might be a very material seat, but I don't know if it's a bellwether seat, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yes. I think Glenmore and Acadia, they're bellwether seats. Uh, you, you know, you already, the third one on my list, you took off. You convinced me otherwise. It was Lesser Slave Lake. Oh, okay. And it, Lesser Slave, yeah. And the reason why it was on my list is not just because it seems like almost, you know, as likely to be the tipping point riding, but it also suggests perhaps a certain effectiveness in uh, the rural area outside of Edmonton, not in the donut, but like the next level out which was instrumental for the NDP victory in, well, not instrumental, they would have won without it. But in 2015, that was a source of seats too. And so if they can win in a riding like Lesser Slave Lake, I don't know, it, it, it maybe doesn't put a lot of things on the board, but it means the UCP are going to be pinned down in some interesting ways, in some interesting ridings. Yeah, it's just Carter, it's I'm so take... isolated, you know, in that isolation. I agree. Um, you talked me out of it, like I yeah. said in your answer. Okay, well, All right, I'm going to take back the reins here. Oh, We've thank got, God! Okay, so there's the two the two yeah. themes on Jigsaw: right wing ecosystem still on the board. <clears throat> a really interesting suggestion by Ty, a, a new version of "fuck Mary kill" called "promote elect Barry." Uh, very easy, Ty. Uh, promote me, elect Corey, so he's off the show, yeah. and bury Stephen Carter. Obviously. Um, I, I haven't read the rest of the question, yeah. but I suspect that's what he's asking. <laughs> yeah. I actually love that suggestion, Ty, and I'm going to actually use it on, on a future episode, so thank you for that suggestion. Carter, we've got questions on going back to your Surrey episode. Remember we did your oh, Surrey deep Surrey. for yeah, the pod? That was good. This one, individual, Brandon's wondering yeah. about momentum campaigns versus traditional voter ID campaigns. What are the tactical differences? So this one gets us back into a broader, evergreen, philosophical question. 
The choice is yours, Carter. Do you want to go on Jugmeet? Do you want to go to Right Wing Ecosystem? Do you want to go on Momentum versus traditional ID campaigns? Or do you want to go somewhere else with what we have on the board? Jeez, um, the Momentum... And I'm going to time us out in the next 20 minutes. That's what I'm going to say. we got 20 minutes left. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to go is to ask what John Charest's next move is. Um, because it's ultimately... <laughs> You know, that's far more important. I like that. It's a good question. Yeah, that's really, yeah. I think... Corey, do you want to do you want to take a shot at this one? Yeah, sure. You know, so Jean Charest needs to pick himself off the yeah. mat. It obviously didn't go the way that he wanted it to go, but we still need a Jean Charest in Canada. Yeah. We need somebody to be a reasonable, pragmatic voice of conservatism. That doesn't mean he needs to be running like a rear vanguard well, campaign against Pierre Polyev, but it, it means he needs to be... Somebody who is speaking to a progressive conservatism that seems to have fallen very much out of favor. In some ways, this ties back to Sam's question, right? How do you get politics boring again? You get boring people to stay in politics. And John Charest, you could be our guy. He's not even boring. He's an interesting guy. But, you know, on the curve of modern times, he uh, he doesn't seem to necessarily have have that kind of pugilism in him. And so I think people like him should stay involved. So as much as it might be embarrassing, humiliating, yeah. just an absolute like clown car that he would even consider being involved, he should stay involved. Absolutely. That's that's what I think. Over really well bit. put, Corey. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and in my, like from my perspective, he's got like the five things that you need to be able to lead as a conservative, right? You got the, 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 the experience, yeah. You've got the wisdom, the leadership capability, the yeah. thoughtfulness, and then the fifth one is 5G. And he's got 5G because... <laughs> Carter, that's a Huawei joke. That's a that's very, very long walk no, to a Huawei joke. Very yeah, good. you're welcome. I totally forgot about, I forgot about Huawei. Yeah, can you... Well, yeah, that's you know, I really interesting. That. Maybe he won't stick yeah. around in politics. Who knows? Carter. And maybe he'll get a job making a lot of money at Huawei. Maybe. Sounds like uh, Zane's got it pretty much mapped out. It's an interesting out idea. Yeah. No, I, listen, this is, it's, it's what I do, um, and it's how I do it, Carter. Carter, we've got a lot of choices oh. on the board. And, and of course, um, I, I should mention that this uh, episode is, of course, brought to you by Flair Airlines. Flair Airlines not, not, not looking so bad right now. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's good. They never. So, for people listening to this a year later, no idea. The airlines all did bad in the next bit. Yeah. yeah. Last bit. Yeah. yeah. So bad that they had to get. Bob Kraft to help fly people to Quebec. Do you hear about oh. this? That the other airline, that the other airline had to get the New England's Patriots jet to fly people back to Quebec. I'm not even joking. That's pretty cool. It's a real news story. Yeah, yeah. That's great. They actually, Did it everyone stop had, in Florida? Everyone had for to, a massage. Not only that, but after the massage, everyone got an oversized hoodie. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Carter, what was that Good. referring to? Just, just so uh, uh, Bill Belichick. Fucking useless. <laughs> okay, whatever. One fact, One baby. Fact, nicely, man. nicely, One nice, fact. nice, Carter. Uh, Carter, where are we going? Where are we going? What do you want to talk about? Um, I think we could probably keep going in the philosophical. Let's do the Surrey thing. Um, you want to talk about momentum versus traditional voter ID questions? Yeah, because I think that there's something fundamentally happening with voter identification campaigns, and I think that you know we can talk a little bit about it. And the only way to talk this about is Brandon's it, question, yeah. The only way to talk about it is to understand why we do. Like, what is it when we say we're going to do a voter identification campaign? And a voter identification campaign usually means going out and finding the people who have voted for you in the past and make or are planning to vote for you in the future, and then actually getting that vote out to the polls. That to me is is the standard definition of a voter identification campaign. We use telephones, we use texts, we use emails. Uh, all of those things, I think, were really used 
Um, uh, you know, Sheree's campaign tried to use a voter identification campaign, but ultimately they were doing a momentum campaign that failed. And a momentum campaign is much different because the momentum campaign is trying to find people who are not necessarily talking to political operatives. They're the ones who don't answer the door when the door is, you know, when the doorbell rings and it's either, you know, the Church of Latter-day Saints or whoever's ringing your doorbell and or the political people. And so they don't answer the phone. They, they don't answer the phones. They don't answer the texts. They don't answer, um, you know, the, the doors. And those people hear from others. So the way that the momentum campaign works is that old, what was it, Clairol campaign? I don't even remember. Was it, whatever. You tell two friends and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and you're getting momentum because you're being talked about outside of the traditional circle. And the best example I can come up with is Nahed Nenshi. In Nahed Nenshi's campaign in 2010, it was a standard, it was a textbook, textbook momentum campaign where his name meant more than voter identification. We had, I think, less than 6,000 people identified as voting for Nenshi, but we had 140,000 people ultimately cast their ballot for him. So that is the standard of a momentum campaign versus the standard of a voter identification campaign. Now, why do I think there's problems in voter identification campaigns? People aren't answering the telephones. People aren't answering the doors. People don't answer their texts. If you can't talk to people and do the one-on-one contact from the campaign to the voter, then the voter identification campaign fails. And Carter, I'm sure that has implications on your spend on a campaign as well, whether you're spending on conversion-based digital mediums to try to get emails on a list or you're spending to create what you'd call mythology or brand or story uh, with reach and frequency. So I suspect that one of the other sort of differences, whether implicit or to Corey's earlier point on strategy, whether you you know back yourself into it or are deliberate about it, is where you're putting your money in terms of any sort of advertising uh, as well. Well, this is really where I mean one of the hardest parts about working in the in this game right now is just trying to find a list with people's names on it. Um, you know, who are you speaking to? I mean, there's a voter list in the provincial elections, but in municipal elections, the voter lists have been pulled. So you can't even do a voter identification game in the in the municipal. But if you're running a councillor campaign, certainly you can. You just go go and door knock the 42,000 houses in your neighborhood. And you know, in that area that you're responding to. That is the, the epitome of a voter identification. So how much money you have will change how you spend it. You know, you can get people talking through the use of mass media. Um, and you can also get, you know, people talking through, um, you know, smaller activities, smaller tactics. We always used to target uh, moms in the in playgrounds. Moms in playgrounds, I've always thought, is one of the most important um, areas that you can go to to get people talking about your campaign. You know, for years and years, we always kind of made it out that the women were gossiping or in those things. They're talking about important issues and they are those important issues are then being decided amongst the group together. And that group can include men, it can include women, but the group at a at a school playground is demographically aligned they are so psychographically aligned and they are geographically aligned and they will therefore change their minds um, collectively. And I'll throw it over to, to young Mr. Hogan, who seems to have more to say. Uh, Corey, uh, let's get to you from the uh, 
from the parking lot. How do you? What do you think, Corey? Well, first of all, it was a commercial for Fabergé Organics. Was the name of the Thank shampoo? You very much. Heather Locklear was in it. Yeah. Second of all. One of the things that I think needs to be underlined here is that, well, for a campaign like mayor, you may be put in a position where you're having to choose one or the other based on resource constraints. When you talk about a provincial campaign, when you talk about a federal campaign, they do both or they attempt to do both. Right. So the, we, we often talk about this in terms of air war and ground war. Right. Mm-hmm. So they are going to try to run that mass media campaign from central. They're going to have the leaders tour. They're going to be trying to get on the news each night. They're going to be purchasing advertising. And that that is one version that is trying to build the momentum campaign. And you can see that happen. I mean, Rachel Notley did that in 2015 here in Alberta. Justin Trudeau did that also in 2015, I suppose, uh, federally. It happens all the time. Right. Somebody comes, they catch a wave and all of a sudden they're there. But they marry it with strong ground game. And the 2015 liberals, I think, are the example here, because that was still a party and an institution, despite being in third for good chunks of that. And they had credible candidates on the ground. They had strong campaigns on the ground. They were raising a lot of money. And they went out and they identified their voters and they pulled their voters on Election Day. So they they did land and air. And and so these two things can be complementary as well. And often in the context of parliamentary elections, they are intentionally complementary and they are built in both senses, knowing that the other side's going to have to pick up some of the slack. Nicely done. Corey, any direction you want to go to next or do you want to just let me pick? Because there's a lot of stuff on the board that I want to get to in our final what I'm going to call 10 minutes before over under lightning round. Yeah, um, for sure. But just don't go back to that Jean Charest one again. Yeah, man. yeah, it's starting to get that's, old. Uh, that's actually a really fucking ridiculous. really good question. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to think about what that guy's going to do going in the in the future. Carter, any any ideas? Listen, I'm just uh, I'm pretty upset about him um, only being able to make a lot of money instead of a crazy amount of money. Uh, I feel bad. It's for crazy. Him. Feels like we've asked this question before, Corey. I'm going to talk to you about this. Let's end on a federal note. Let's end on a perhaps speculative note. Um, Let's talk about the question that is being asked here. I'm going to find the name of the individual, but I'm going to ask you the spirit of the question, and I'll refine it once I find it. Justin Trudeau, is he best positioned to take on Pierre Polyev heading into the next election? Let's assume supply and confidence agreement lasts. Uh, We'll address the questions on Jagmeet Singh and right-wing media in a future episode. Trust me, I'll bake those in, but I want to talk about this. Is he the right or best leader to, to keep the reins? I'll find the question here in a second, but get started on your thoughts on this uh, against Pierre Polyev, because it's starting to, to gel at least a bit in terms of what the uh, leadership slate looks like, Trudeau versus Polyev versus Singh versus May, <laughs> in terms of uh, the, the next election. Really interesting. When you rattle off those names, um, that the the leaders, at least national leaders, not looking at the the BQ, but even the BQ, like they're all veterans except Paul F. Right? Yes. They, this is not their first campaign for any of them. So, been a while since we've had such a returning cast. I think. Um, hmm. Okay. Is he the right guy? No, he's not. I'll just be simple and plain about that. And uh, which is not to say he wasn't the right guy for the moment in 2015, but. It's like they say in the movie, Dave, you stay long enough and you become the villain. Yeah. Mm. And I think what Justin Trudeau has got at this point is just far too much baggage. And let's be super clear about this. In both 2019 and in 2021, 
he lost the popular vote. He barely won. And yes, the liberals can pat themselves on the back for the brilliance of their data analytics and the way they assigned resources and the way they marshaled things exactly where they needed to be. But let's cut the bullshit. Fewer people voted for the liberals than voted for the conservatives. And this situation is not going to get better with a leader who has a stronger hold on his party, a leader who is a much better communicator. I'm talking about Pierre Polyev right now. And, uh, and frankly, a prime minister who has continued to wear out his welcome. And, you know, I'm not knocking what the guy did. The liberals, I've said this, and I think Ibbotson wrote a column about this just a couple of days ago. It's been the most consequential. consequential yeah prime minister of my lifetime. There's, there's no disputing that, in my opinion. Um, but, but, here we are, right? And you got to know when your curtain call is coming. And for him, if he tries to run the same playbook, even if he tries to run a modified playbook, I just don't believe he's the guy who's going to be able to beat Pierre Polyev at this point, which is why I would take an even money bet that Pierre Polyev is going to be the next prime minister. So, if he's not the right guy, what has to happen here? Well, Rather than the party going through a bunch of turmoil in terms of of coming to that realization slowly, I think Justin Trudeau needs to take a walk in the snow. He needs to go like his father did and determine that it's time to resign. Uh, and unlike his father, he should stay resigned. Uh, but the fact that Joe Clark is not prime minister will probably help with that. And we need to we need to have new leadership at the Liberal Party. Uh, if there's going to be a competitive Liberal Party that has a chance at governing. Now, I don't think Trudeau is going to get wiped out. I don't think necessarily that the Conservatives are even guaranteed to beat the combination of Trudeau uh, and Singh. But his days as governing are, of governing are over. And, and at this point, you need to be thinking about what's, what's the best way to maintain both the party and maintain kind of that progressive Canada that you have built over the past seven years. Uh, and he should be thinking about legacy in terms of that, not just his personal legacy, but the legacy of the things that he's created. Carter, this was Marsha's question. The, the spirit of it is, are there hypothetical leaders better than JT? Corey answers whether he's the right guy. Carter, I'm going to ask that same question to you and maybe start the expansion pack is, who would be better in your mind? And then Patrick chimes in on this as well to say, are there contenders, and if they are contenders that are better suited, what should their course of action be right now? Corey's kind of given a bit of you know what tr- direction Trudeau should head in. If he doesn't go in that direction, if you're a contender for this, what, what should you be doing as the new year now arrives to start thinking about your leadership ambitions for the Liberal Party if Justin Trudeau doesn't step aside? Well, I mean, keep your... Keep your attention high. If if you are someone who wants to be seen and wants to be seen as a potential leadership candidate, keep your you know. Um, what is it? Champagne that has been everywhere over the last little while. There was an article in the paper about it yesterday, um, all over Twitter. Uh, you know, you you've got. We've talked about Christian Freeland um, keeping her profile high. There's others, uh, Jolie. There's a lot of people who could be the liberal leader. Are they better? I don't know. What does better mean? Better doesn't mean anything. Better to us only means can they win the election election. That is all better means to us. We're here talking about electoral politics, trying to get someone elected. And Jason, or Jason, Justin Trudeau is going to probably lose to Pierre Polyev if he stays on. And that indicates that he needs to, to leave. And it doesn't matter matter. It doesn't matter if the person who's next is objectively better or worse. The fact that they are new 
is wine. Why did old Coke change to new Coke? Because they wanted to get more people to buy their bad example, maybe. Might might not be the Bad best example. example. Yeah. Um, okay. Good to know. I've I've screwed that up. But re- realistically, <laughs> you change just for change's sake. The party's still the party. Yeah. The brand's still the brand. The people are still the people. But you have to have a change in order to give people a reason to vote for you. And Corey's point about the fact that the last two elections he hasn't won a majority of votes tells us everything we need to know about who he is. He's never going to win the majority of votes. That is not in the cards for him next. If he chooses to stay, is there a strategy that can keep him in the in the prime ministership? Probably. Will it need to be implemented perfectly? Absolutely. And that's where I also have problems because this the, the campaigns that they ran the last two campaigns were simply not good enough. So how they're going to do it, what they look like in the future, that's someone else's problem. But right now, um, the easiest way to fix this is that the leader takes the walk in the snow. The second easiest way to fix this is to have a better group of campaigners. Corey, for me, the expansion on, on this question that, that, that you know, Patrick chimes into and, and that Marsha asks is, is it possible to reinvent a leader without them going away and coming back? Like, is re- yeah. and And yeah. how viable and possible is reinvention? Maybe we leave it on this note, because what I think both of you agree on is that this version of Trudeau, the one we've had for the last, sorry, how many years? Seven years? Seven plus years, now leading on to eight, um, has evolved in certain ways, but it's been the same guy. Is reinvention here possible, Corey? Yeah, sure, of course, always. Um, I'm... I'm sort of struggling to think of a leader that did that. Um, I guess Christy Clark immediately comes to mind as somebody who who refound her footing, right? Refound her swagger and was able to govern a little more forcefully. There are others, though. Um, often, often those leaders who are struggling, though, are struggling because they lack the full support of their party. And there are more tools to find ways to reassert your control over the party. What we're talking about here is a little different. It's talking about reinventing yourself in the public eye and, and doing that without going away. Can I ask you this, where, where this question comes from for me? It, it, I might give you more yeah. context. It comes from the near universal praise that Trudeau got for his testimony in the Emergencies Act inquiry. Where people were like, where the fuck is this guy? Yeah. Like, more of this guy. And and it was almost like, to me, the question was open-ended. And be like, yeah, hey, where the fuck is this guy? And wait, could they just introduce this guy? And that's where the spirit of the question comes for me, is that people have seen a version of what Trudeau might be like in closed-door scenarios, or what he might be like as he governs the country. And there's at least a constituency of people that see that as a breath of fresh air, or if not an improvement, or even to Carter's point, maybe not an improvement, but something different, something uh, that that might be more um, in line with where people's head is. So that's where the spirit of the question comes for me, Corey, um, which is that there at least is a version on the table, a different Justin Trudeau. And is that reinvention holistically possible? Yeah. Yeah. Like I can imagine, let's, let's paint a picture here, right? He decide, and there's years to do this too. There are years for yeah, him to yeah. do this. So it's not as though you couldn't create a trajectory towards this. You couldn't do it overnight, but you can create a prime minister who is less performative, more serious, less breathless, more heft, 
hopefully his hair goes gray at exactly the right time. And he gives off the sense of being an elder statesman against Skippy, right? Mm. Against the, uh, the bro that is Jugmeet Singh. And, and that might be something that works. That might be exactly what needs to match a, a moment where we're all so bloody weary. You, you present yourself less as the party of change and more as the party of stability. And that's a pretty big pivot. It's a pretty mm. big pivot for a guy who even last election ran on introducing a national child care program, program. Yeah, right? yeah. which is change. But if over the next couple of years you almost say, now we land the plane, right? We, we've, we, there's always more work to be done. The work is never done, but now we land the plane. We've, we've got to make sure that you know our economy is in order, our social programs are in order. We're dealing with these things incrementally at this point. And we don't need any dangerous experiments, uh, ideological experiments from either of the other two. Maybe there's a version where you can do that. It doesn't seem impossible to me. Maybe I'm even talking myself into it being better than going out into, you know, places unknown. Because frankly, swapping the leader doesn't often work either. But I, I think you've got to be realistic about the limitations of that. He's got a well-defined brand at this point. Mm. People think the things they think about Justin Trudeau, and it's going to be very hard to change that. Very hard. Carter, would you welcome and take on and think that a reinvention of Trudeau within still staying in the public eye, not going away and coming back gray-haired, but like, to Corey's point, literally and metaphorically, gaining gray hairs during your time with the spotlight on you? Is that reinvention possible, or are we just... Am I just talking bullshit here no of course it's possible um it's possible i can go through an entire podcast without making fun of someone that's possible is it probable probably not i'm probably gonna call you know and you know make Cyril turton mad at me or you know call someone an idiot that's what i'm gonna do and sorry what, what did you what did you say about Cyril? just so uh, other he's people boring, maybe just tuning in. he's just boring okay. um sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing this? And uh, who had the worst book, uh, worst political book? Uh, Preston Manning uh, had the worst book. But that's so anyways, my point is this. Some people are just the person that they appear to be, right? So if you're, if you're going to take Justin Trudeau, the thing with Justin Trudeau that always has driven me crazy is the thing that he appears to be is the is the high school drama teacher, the, the guy who always over emotes and always kind of re reverts to the seriousness. And when you saw that glimmer of hope in the testimony that he gave about the emergencies inquiry, he emergencies act inquiry, he looked and sounded different. Now, can we make that his new persona? I'd love to try. I think that if you were able to make that his new persona and to join in a little bit of what Corey said, put in this idea that there is a, uh, a new Canada that is just within our grasp. If only we had four more years, if only we had four more years, here are the five things that we could do. And those five things are going to make sure, you know, we've already done healthcare. We've already doing dental. We're already doing, you know, we're going to guarantee housing in this country. It is going to be a protected, right? We're going to make sure that that happens. Boom. You know, whatever it may be, but he takes on those positions and, um, doesn't sound like a, High school drama teacher, gray and and yeah, I'd gray his hair, you know, like uh, uh, Nenshi cut his hair slowly over the first um, campaign. He you know it took months and it was and he wound up cutting it down. Um, 
do the exact same thing. You know, take a few, take a few months and, and have his hair go gray. I think that we want to, I think we want a gray haired, um, prime minister. I think that that'd be good. So go for it. And if you heard uh, my dog pushing on the door, my apologies. Uh, Corey, it, uh, talk to me about, finish us off on, on your final thoughts on, on what's kind of been um, extended on, on Marsha's question here to the, the Trudeau reinvention project. Yeah, there is something to be said for his own fire for the job, too. Yeah, you know, we're talking about Kenny Wynn and we're asked to sort of construct a path to victory. And I guess I can do that. You know, I guess any of us can do that. Oh. We, we can just sort of draw it out. But fundamentally, is there anything else he wants yeah. to do as prime minister? Right. And if not, either go or turn that into a virtue. But you, you've got to this takes us loops us right back to strategy. Right. What are your goals? What are your objectives? That will determine your strategy. That will determine your tactics. And I I just don't have a good enough line of sight. I, he, in some ways, he feels somewhat spent from a policy point of view, but still trying to be the change guy. And I don't think that's something that's easily reconciled. Corey, you make such a great point to finish us off here, because I don't know how many times you guys have been on a, a re-election campaign or a campaign or you're talking to friends that are on a re-election campaign, and you realize that despite the level of candidate quality, which is generally high, staff and leadership quality, which is generally high, that a lot of these campaigns miss out on the why we're doing this, yeah. the goals, the objectives, the strategy, because it's like, well, fuck, like re-election is up. We've got to run again. And the why of what we're looking to accomplish uh, usually turns out to be an expansion pack of what we've already done uh, more yeah. and better. Uh, but, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's, it's so fundamental. And I think voters start to notice when you are starting to seek re-election just because, uh, not to tie in too many things from this episode, just because it's the momentum thing to do. Because it's just like momentum pushes you to the next election. Okay, I guess we're running and let's turn our eye to that. And okay, we're just going to tell them what we did and do more of it. Um, versus actually saying, here's a clear stated goal for chapter two. Here's a clear stated goal for chapter three. Here's the story that here, here we are now at this particular act one, scene three of the story. We've got a five part sort of story we're here to tell you. We're at scene, part two of that story, right? And, well, and, you and, know, and giving folks, maybe not even, and that's a little too cute, but no, giving no, no. folks you're, a sense of, right. of, of the broader stage play you are putting on and how long this thing, at least uh, in its current production, is, is going to, to showcase for people and what it's yeah, going to show like. Look, I think one of the things there's, – there's a bunch of things that all crash together here. One is the unreasonable expectations of voters like, oh, you did that two years ago. What, what are you doing now? Like, yeah. Yeah. Just keep going. Let's keep moving, right? The other is that politicians like to act as though everything is finished. And so often the situation you're talking about where somebody's like, this is version two, this is the upgrade – in many ways, is that landing of the plane I was talking about? Mm. It's okay, we did this, but we really want to do this now. Like, we want to entrench this. We want to make sure it's done. Yeah, we got a deal, but we want a better deal with the doctors. Or, yeah, you know, we, we fixed healthcare a little, but we got more to do, but they've already declared victory on healthcare. So they get into a weird box of their own making, but it's a box they made because of the expectations of the public. And, you know, in general... I don't know. Uh, it, it's probably asking too much to say people should be more patient with government. This is just no appetite for that. But how many things really fundamentally change in three years? Mm. You know, these things do take time to become entrenched to show their full value. And we just run on much shorter cycles than that. 
We're going to leave that segment there, our mandated mailbag. That segment, of course, uh, Carter brought to us by our sponsor, Flair Airlines. Uh, Flair Airlines, wait, planes go to Mexico? Uh, we'll move it on to our final segment, our final segment, our over-under and our lightning round. And Stephen Carter, there's only one question to rule them all. There's only one question I want to ask you. Stephen Carter, it's not on a scale of 1 to 10. It's not overrated, underrated. It is a fill-in-the-blanks on what Jean Charest should do next. Stephen Carter, lay it on us. Jean Charest should make so much money that he makes uh, Pierre Polyev look like a pupper. Uh, Corey Hogan, uh, Jean Charest, we haven't discussed him yet. I know we've uh, people have been uh, itching at, at this. There's been a few questions about him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we haven't got to him. Uh, Jean Charest, what should he do next, Corey? Jean Charest should just get out of politics. I know there's going to be people who say he should stick around, yeah. he should still be the voice of that moderate conservatism, but the reality is if you want moderate conservatism to flourish, you're going to need to find a new spokesperson. And, and Jean Charest right now has all this baggage. I mean, I was just reminded by someone the other day about his involvement with Huawei. Really? Right? Really. Yeah. I, I didn't mean, even know that. I, people Thanks forget for this me. all the time. But yeah, he was, he was involved with Huawei and, and he's just not the right standard bearer not for now. that. So listen, he's going to have a desire to stick around. He's going to have people saying to him things like, you're the guy for this. We need voices like you around. We need standard bearers like this. But we just need him to step back. Yep. Because until that old guard, uh, you know, and the and kind of the whiff of it goes away, there's no chance for this kind of boring moderate conservatism. Oh, that's such a good, good that's point. such a good take. Yeah. I want to uh, such a good take. I want to extradite it. We're gonna leave that episode there. That's a wrap on episode 1025 of the Strategist. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time. Uh-huh.